Good morning again. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30 will be our sermon text for this morning, Acts chapter 11, verse 19. And before we read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we do come uh, for you to speak to us through your word, to breathe life into us by your spirit, through your word. And so we pray that you would come and meet with us right now as we, as we read your word, as we hear your word, as we meditate together on the scriptures. We pray that you would use that to work in us, uh, to uh, shape and fashion us, as we just sang, to help us to see Jesus more fully and then to be conformed into his image by your Holy Spirit. Uh, work to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 11, uh, beginning with verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Have you ever felt out of place? Like you didn't belong? Like maybe uh, you were useless or fruitless? Maybe the people around you were getting ready for some big event and you wanted to help, uh, but you just felt in the way. Or maybe it's bigger than that, right? Maybe you always feel out of the place. Maybe you always feel in the way, like you stick out and everybody notices it. What would it look like to belong, to really belong? That's what we're going to talk about this morning, how the gospel leads to belonging, we're going to look at that in Acts chapter 11 in the verses we just read. We're going to ask the question, okay, what does this look like? What does this mean to belong? And we're going to see from this chapter, though there are a lot more things we probably could say, but from Acts 11, we're going to see four things. Uh, the first is uh, having a place 
and then having a role, bearing fruit, and sharing a name. Now, we're in the middle of the book of Acts. We've been studying the book of Acts for a few months now. And uh, Acts is about how Jesus, by his spirit, through the apostles, is laying the foundation of his church. And it's about a number of movements. Uh, the move from Jerusalem to Rome. The move from Jew to Gentile. And as such, Acts spends a lot of time actually going over issues like culture and race, prejudice and belonging. See, every time the gospel goes out to a new people, uh, some people begin to ask questions like, is this a good thing? Is this okay? Should we be doing this? Is this allowed? Is God in this? And so uh, a number of sermons recently, uh, you may have noticed, have been about sort of the inclusion of the Gentiles or inclusivity in the church or the community of the church. And there will be uh, more than that before all is said and done as we keep going through the book of Acts. Because Acts and the gospel are about God making one new people out of the two, taking Jew and Gentile and bringing them together in Christ taking people who were formerly far off and bringing them near through the cross. So this week we're going to talk about belonging and, and what does it look like and how does the gospel get us there. And so first uh, we'll see that the gospel leads to having a, a place. The gospel leads to having a place. Uh, you probably know uh, that in the Old Testament there are certain laws uh, sometimes called purity laws, laws that distinguish who is clean and who is unclean, uh, who can come into God's presence and who cannot, uh, laws that distinguish Jew from Gentile. Now, really, as you read through the Old Testament, you realize everyone becomes unclean at some point in their life, really at multiple points in their lives. So uh, there shouldn't have been too big of a stigma about being unclean, but really there was. And Gentiles tended to be looked down on in their uncleanness. And those who kept closely to the laws prided themselves on their cleanness. We see that in Jesus' day in the Gospels. You might think uh, that this is kind of a barbaric system, right? Where some people are in and some people are out. Some people are clean and some people are unclean. Uh, but the truth is every society has this kind of setup. Sometimes it's obvious, right, like the caste system in India. Sometimes it's a little more subtle. Today we, we openly denounce such systems, but who could deny that there is an in-crowd in modern America? You may say there are many in-crowds, but I, I don't know that that takes away from the point. The, the barbarism of our system is that it's not always clear who's in and who's out. And, and if you are out, how do you become in? And if you feel unclean in our culture, right, how do you become clean? If someone is stigmatized, it's not always clear how do you lose that stigma. Our culture has no right, no, no ritual to cleanse. That was not true in Israel. Right? There, there were ways of becoming clean. Ways of being cleansed, rituals that involved water and oil and blood. But these rituals, rituals actually, rather than doing away with the worldly distinctions, they ended up enforcing them. And then comes Jesus. Jesus comes as a Jew. Uh, he comes to spend time with unclean people. 
He eats with tax collectors. He drinks with drunkards. He touches the leper. He asks for water from an unclean woman. He allows a prostitute to kiss his feet, her unclean lips on his bare skin. Jesus talks with Gentiles and even praises them for their faith. Why would, you, why would Jesus do all this? Didn't he know what was clean and what was unclean? Well, actually, he did. He taught his disciples in Mark chapter 7 that there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile them. Jesus taught that ritual uncleanness pointed to something deeper, something more profound, something more than skin deep. And he goes on in Mark 7 to say, whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus, Mark says, he declared all foods clean. And Jesus went on, uh, whatever, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Now, here's why this is so important, right? Jesus identifies the, the source of true impurity, the source of true uncleanness. It's not outward things, but it is the heart and the evil that comes from it. Now, thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us there, but he takes it one step further and he goes to the cross and he sheds his blood to cleanse not our bodies, but our souls by faith. Jesus removes the necessity of these purity laws by purifying our hearts. And here's what this means. Here's why this is so important for the book of Acts. What this means is that all are now welcome into God's presence through Jesus. Jew or Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, outwardly clean or outwardly unclean, and even the inwardly unclean can come and be cleansed by Jesus. Well, this brings us to our text into verses 19 and 20. Verse 19 says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, if you remember back in chapter 8, a heavy persecution of Christians had begun. It was spearheaded by one Saul of Tarsus. And many Christians had to flee Jerusalem. And most of them, as they went, spoke the word, that is, they spoke the gospel, were told to no one except their fellow Jews. They may have thought that the coming of the Jewish Messiah was good news only for Jewish people. Others understood, though, better the implications of what Jesus had done. If Jesus had come to cleanse hearts by faith, that is good news for Jew and Gentile alike. And so he began, uh, that some began to speak the gospel to Hellenists also, we're told. The word Hellenist just means a Greek-speaking person. Uh, you may remember back in Acts chapter 6, that word Hellenist referred to Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. 
Here it refers to Greek-speaking non-Jews because it's contrasted in verse 19 with, with Jews. Uh, so uh, some in Antioch began to speak the gospel to Gentiles, Greek-speaking Gentiles, as well as to Jews. Now, Antioch was one of those uh, crossroads of the world kind of places, right? Uh, so there was this tremendous diversity of people in the city. Now, we've seen in the book of Acts, we've seen Samaritans become Christians. Uh, we've seen an Ethiopian eunuch become a Christian. Uh, we've seen the God-fearing Cornelius and his family become Christians. But what we see here is, is once again, just one more step. Uh, verse 21 says, A great number who believed turned to the Lord. A great number of otherwise unqualified Hellenists. That's all we told about them, Hellenists, that they speak Greek. It's not a Samaritan. It's not a single Ethiopian. It's not one isolated God-fearing family, but a great number of Greek-speaking people. Some of them might have been God-fearing. Others might have been outright pagans. But they're turning from that paganism to the Lord Jesus. God is bringing them into his church by the multitude without distinction. What Paul would say uh, theologically later in the book of Ephesians, we see here practically being worked out in history in Acts. It says in Ephesians chapter 2 that those were at, who were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, now in Christ Jesus, those who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That is, he, he's taken away these purity laws. He's taken away the ceremonial law. So that, we, so that, he goes on, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Notice all the language and all the imagery that fills that section of scripture, right? That, that people have been brought near, one new man, fellow citizens, members of the household of God, right? So, so first and foremost, what does it mean to belong? What does it mean to, to be a part of the church? It means to have a place in God's family, to no longer be far off, to no longer be angel, uh, aliens and strangers, but to be members of the household of God. The gospel leads to belonging by giving us a place in God's family. Those whose hearts are cleansed by faith can now draw near. Second, the gospel leads to having a role. It's one thing to have a place. It's another thing to have a role. Uh, th think about it. I I've heard people say probably dozens of times, different places, different people, to a visitor in their home, a regular visitor in their home, uh, you no longer count as a visitor. right? You've been here long enough. Now you're family. Why do they say that? Normally because they're about to put them to work. <laughs> you're part of the family now. Help set the table. 
Again, think about big holiday meals, right? Everyone zooming around the kitchen, preparing this dish or that. You might be a part of the family, uh, but if you're standing on the sidelines, uh, you, you, you feel like you're just getting in the way. Until someone notices you and says, hey, why don't you cut these potatoes? And then suddenly you belong. Uh, you, have a, you have a place and you have a role. One of the things that I'm fascinated about in the book of Acts, fascinated by in the book of Acts, is, is the diversity of roles that people play within the church, as sort of signified by the diversity of language when talking about what the church does. Uh, so, for example, uh, the, the apostles specifically are called to witness. Uh, I've mentioned this before, that the, the apostles are called to bear eyewitness testimony to the risen Jesus. Uh, in addition to the apostles, Stephen alone is called a witness in Acts. Uh, and, of course, Stephen saw the risen Christ at God's right hand, so he too could bear eyewitness testimony to Jesus as the exalted king. The, the word witness, then, with respect to the church, pretty much always means eyewitness. But there are lots of other, there is lots of other language with respect to what the church does. So verse 19 tells us that those who were scattered speak the word. Or verse 20, some men of Cyprus and Cyrene preach the Lord Jesus. Now the, the word, that phrase the word in the New Testament very often is, is shorthand for the message of the gospel as it is here. And so these phrases really mean the same thing. To speak the word is the same as preach the Lord Jesus. And the Greek word for, for preach is, is, is that word from which we get the word evangelize. It means to share a good message. This is something that all Christians do in the book of Acts. This includes the apostles who preach Jesus. But in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, we're told, Now those who were scattered, which was everyone except the apostles, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That is, they went about sharing the good news of the gospel message. And so all Christians are called to preach in the sense of evangelism or sharing the good news of what Jesus has done. We, we all do that each in our own way, but each in our own way we tell people about Jesus. Now, after many came to faith in Antioch because some preached the word or told others about Jesus, uh, the Jerusalem church hears about this, that many people are turning to the Lord, and they send Barnabas to check it out in verse 22. And Barnabas comes and he sees the grace of God. He's overjoyed at what he sees, at what God is doing. And what does Barnabas do? Verse 23, we're told that Barnabas exhorts them. It's another word, right? Another ministry, another thing the church is doing. Uh, by the way, the word, the name Barnabas means son of encouragement. So this is, this is what Barnabas typically did, right? He shows up and he encourages people. Uh, he exhorts them. What is exhortation? Well, it's, it's encouragement. It's an emphatic urging, right? It's, it's calling someone. It's this serious entreating someone to a particular course of action. Notice what, Bar what is said of Barnabas in verse 23. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Right? Barnabas uh, very well might have been thinking of Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed and the soils. Uh, you remember that parable? Two of the four soils receive the seed, a plant begins to grow, but either troubles wither the fledgling faith or worldliness chokes it out. And so Barnabas is saying, keep going, right? 
Don't, don't be wearied by persecution or trouble. Don't let the world choke out this new faith that you have in Jesus. Persevere in the faith. And this ministry of exhorting is for all of us, isn't it? I mean, first, we need people who will come alongside us and exhort us to persevere, to keep going. We need coaches and cheerleaders in the Christian life, right, who will spur us on and cheer us on and tell us not to give up, not to, not to, not to give in, not to go home, but to run the race and fight the good fight and take up our cross and follow Jesus to the end. But we not only need people to encourage us in that way, to exhort us, but, but we not only need them, uh, we are called to exhort. So uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore... Encourage one another. It's the same word for exhort there. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, there's a real danger of becoming hard-hearted because of sin. And the writer of Hebrews says, Exhort one another so that doesn't happen. Hebrews 10.25, similarly, says, Do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, we need exhortation, and we are called to exhort. It's a part of the regular, ongoing ministry of every Christian in the church. We need one another for that. One of those many reasons why you can't do the Christian life on your own. We need encouragement, and we are called to encourage. So Barnabas right, does this good work in Antioch. He's encouraging the people there, uh, but it, it wasn't enough, actually, and Barnabas knew it. He exhorted them, and he encouraged them, but they needed something more. So what does he do? He leaves, and he goes to Tarsus to find Saul. Now, you remember Saul, right? He was the, the persecutor back in Acts uh, eight, uh, but he was converted back in Acts chapter nine. He had this miraculous vision of Jesus on the Damascus road, and he immediately began to preach. But because of plots against his life, uh, the fellow, his fellow Christians shipped him off to Tarsus, where I guess they thought he would be safe. And now Barnabas is going to get Saul. This Saul, and uh, we read in verse 26, uh, when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And so here we have another word, right? Taught, teaching. Uh, the, the word teaching actually is more restricted uh, in uh, the New Testament than evangelizing or exhorting. Uh, there, there's one place where we are all encouraged to teach one another. That's true. It's in Colossians 3.16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. And so there is this generic use of that term. But most of the time, in the New Testament, teaching is what teachers do. Uh, and, and so Barnabas goes to get Saul to teach the people. Uh, teaching is a, is a weighty term in the New Testament. It carries authority. Uh, we're told that elders must be able to teach in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, James warns us, saying, Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers. James 3.1, For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And, of course, there are frequent warnings in the New Testament against false teachers and false teaching. 
And so, whereas uh, what is translated as preaching or evangelizing in Acts is, is done by all, all kinds of people as they go about their day, it includes sharing the basics of the story of Jesus. And exhortation or encouraging is to be done by all and means spurring one another on in the Christian life. Teaching seems to be done in the New Testament by just certain qualified men who are called to that specific task. But there's more, right? It doesn't end there. Uh, that, that, that's not the last role that we see in you know, first, the first church of Antioch. Uh, verses 27 to 30 um, go on to tell us that we hear of a, a prophet foretelling this coming famine. Now, God at, at various times has raised up prophets who brought messages from God more directly than, say, a teacher or an evangelist. And at times, those messages included foretelling future events, as this one does here. And uh, whatever we might say about prophets today, which is kind of a big uh, discussion, uh, we can at least say this, uh, that there, is, there are no infallible prophetic words today, like there were uh, of old. The only infallible word we have is in the scriptures, because the message of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done is now complete. The view that infallible words from God have ceased is called cessationism, uh, which is certainly not to say that God is not at work in and through his people or by his spirit. Not at all. But it is to say that God is no longer giving new redemptive revelation or infallible guidance. Rather, God has given us everything we need, we're told in 2 Peter 1, 3. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness in the knowledge of Jesus. And so what is maybe more important for us than, than what this prophet said is how the church responded. The prophet Agabus foretold a famine. And so we're told in verse 29, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Uh, notice a couple of things. First, uh, the other aspects of the church's ministry that we've seen so far in Antioch uh, have been all speaking, uh, exhorting, evangelizing, teaching. But now we have serving. Uh, the church's ministry overall consists of both, both word and deed. Uh, second, notice that the church in Antioch is sending relief to the church in Judea. Uh, this is what we would probably call cross-cultural mercy ministry, right? Uh, but that's what's going on here. Uh, they, they see a need. They see a need uh, of, of their fellow believers in uh, Jerusalem, and they take a collection to provide for that need. Uh, third, notice that what this also means, this mercy ministry is not just local, Right? Uh, it, one church is helping another church of another town in a different place. And so they're not, just, they're not just looking at the needs right around them, though I'm sure they did that, but they're looking at the needs broader as well. What are the needs of our fellow believers out there in the world, in other places? They see a need and they, they make a move to, to fulfill that need. Finally, notice how everyone gives, uh, according to verse 29, everyone according to his ability. And uh, th this is a really good phrase, really, for the whole church's ministry, for every aspect of the church's ministry, isn't it? Uh, in Antioch, some are evangelizing, others are exhorting, Paul is teaching, everyone's giving according to his or her ability. Uh, and, and this is really all a direct result of Acts chapter 2, isn't it? 
Jesus empowers each one of us by the Spirit to engage others in love. That's what 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says. We, we've read it a couple times already in the service this morning. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This is what happened at Pentecost and is being worked out now in the local church of Antioch. What this means is everyone has a role. Uh, you, you may not know what your role is, but everyone has a place in the church and everyone has a role. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Your job is to figure out how the Spirit has gifted you for the good of the church. But the best way to figure that out is just to look around and to see what opportunities are there and to start serving. And if that doesn't seem to work, if you get into something, you think this is just not for me, that's okay. Move on to the next opportunity. There will always be other opportunities. Ask God and ask His Spirit and the church to guide you, to lead you to the place where you can serve Him using the gifts that He has given you. So the gospel leads to, to membership in the church. It leads to belonging. It leads to having a place in the body and having a role to play. The gospel also leads, three, to bearing fruit. Uh, this won't take quite as long, but it's worth pointing out because it's mentioned so many times in this short passage. Notice verse 21. As some uh, preached uh, Jesus to the Greeks in Antioch, we're told, verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And then uh, notice verse 24. As Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, exhorts the people, we're told, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And then notice verse 26. As Paul meets with the church for a whole year, he teaches a great many people. God is actually concerned with growth, both spiritual and numeric. We were actually talking in, in Sunday school a little bit about this. Uh, we were talking about the, the original command that God gave to humanity. And the original command was... Be fruitful and multiply. Why is that? God wants His image to fill the earth. And now that, that sin has happened and God's image in humanity is broken, that image needs to be restored. And that's restored as the gospel goes forth and people come to know Him and are transformed into the image of Jesus by the Spirit. So God is actually concerned with growth, both spiritual and and numeric. He desires many people to come to know his grace found in the cross. And so, uh, verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with those who spoke about Jesus. God was at work. And when Barnabas arrives, he sees the grace of God at work. Now, it's true, right? Numeric growth is not always a sign of God's blessing. We need to be careful, right, how we think about this, but sometimes it is. It is here in Acts 11, at least. God was blessing the ministry of some unnamed men of Cyprus and Cyrene. We don't even know their names, but God was at work blessing them, blessing the ministry of Barnabas, blessing the ministry of Paul, and really the ministry of the whole church of Antioch, and the result was the growth of that church. And while we shouldn't get fixated on numbers, uh, we should have a desire to see people turning to the Lord, and we should be praying and working creatively to that end. Using the very gifts that God has given us, everyone according to his or her ability. 
Now, uh, you might wonder, okay, well, what does all this, this growth talk have to do with belonging? Okay, fair enough. It's maybe a little bit different from the other points. But I, I think, while it is true, uh, sometimes you, 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 read, uh, you read biographies of missionaries and you realize that sometimes God has his faithful people labor in ministry without fruit for decades. That's true. God might do that for a time, for a time. But in general, we should expect to see the fruit of the gospel. And that fruit often becomes a, a confirmation for us, right? That, that we're in the right place, that we're, that, that we're serving as God would have us. And so the gospel leads to, to having a place, it leads to having a role, it leads to bearing fruit as the gospel goes forth. And God blesses that. The hand of the Lord is with us, bearing fruit through his word. Fourth, the gospel leads to sharing a name. You know, as diverse as the church uh, was at Antioch, it was in this diverse context that the church was first unified under the name of Jesus. And, and this actually makes sense, because as long as the church was mostly Jewish converts, it was seen as just another Jewish sect. But once you have a diverse people from diverse backgrounds who do diverse things, all gathering together, suddenly you have to ask the question, what unites this people? And what united them was Christ. The Messiah. And so verse 26 says that it was in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians, people belonging to Christ. And here's why this is so important, right? I mean, think about it. Even as, as you look around at the people in this room, uh, however many people there are, 60 people, 70 people, I don't know, 50 people, whatever. I'm, I'm not good at math. Uh, of the people in this room, how many of them would you have naturally found yourself just hanging out with on Friday night? Right? Now, th there's a great group of people in this room. I'm not disparaging you in any way. <laughs> but how many would you have hung out with had you never been a part of this church? What draws us together this morning is not common interests, though we might have some. It's not even our common culture per se, we certainly share some things in common, but what draws us together and holds us together is Jesus and only Jesus. And Jesus better be enough because there may come a day when our unity is tested, when our differences are more pronounced, when we have to answer the question, why am I a part of this people? Why do I go to this church? And the answer better be Jesus or we're doomed. Because every other answer is likely to lead to division. But Jesus unites us together into one people made from every tribe and tongue and nation under heaven. You know, there are lots of names that divide. Lots of things that people might call you or might call me which highlight division and disunity. But with all of this diversity in Antioch, in ethnicity, in gifting, in ministry, with all of this growth in numbers and in faithfulness, uh, there was essential unity under the name of Christ. And so the early believers were first called Christians in Antioch. This is why right, gospel-shaped community is ultimately pluriform and unified. What in the world does that mean? I, I really just mean that, uh, that it can be as diverse as all the nations under heaven, that, that the church can take many forms, it can look very different 
from one place to the next. But God has taken the diverse peoples of the earth and made us one in Christ. And he has done that through the gospel. How have we, we seen the gospel lead to these things? As we've walked through this passage, Jesus removes the necessity of the purity laws by purifying our hearts. He's done that. He's done away with the importance of these worldly divisions by, by removing the spiritual barrier to fellowship with God, which means Jesus has given us a place in the church by faith in him. Jesus empowers each one of us then by the Spirit to engage others in love, gifting each of us so that we can serve and we can give each according to our ability, which means Jesus has given us a role in the church. God blesses the ministry of his church by drawing men and women to himself through the ministry of others in the church. And for that, we should pray and we should work and we should strive praying for God to bear fruit in and through us. And Jesus unites this diverse ragamuffin, ragtag, motley crew together into one people made from every tribe, tongue, and nation so that we, in, in our unity in diversity, reflect the, the multiform beauty of the glory of our God. And we do that under one name, the name of Christ. Jesus prayed for this unity, you may remember, uh, remember in the high priestly prayer, John 17, uh, John 17, 11, Jesus says, I no longer, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus prays for our unity under his name. He prays this three more times in John 17. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. See, for Jesus, our living uh, out uh, unity in the church is actually a matter of our witness. That the world may believe, he says. That the world may know. Which actually means one of the best things that we can do as a church to bear witness to the world is love one another. It's a bit counterintuitive, but, but Jesus said it. He said it in John 13, 35. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Would you be praying with me that God would help us as a church to, to know that we have a place as members of his body, his church, that we have a role as members of his church? Pray that God would enable us by the Spirit to bear fruit, that we would bear witness to Jesus, and that we would see those who don't know him come to know him through the spread of the gospel. Would you pray that that, that witness would begin, not end, but begin with us loving one another so that the world may know. And then we can pray with the psalmist in Psalm 67 when he says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let's pray.
Our Father, that is what we want. We want to see the peoples praise you, all the peoples praise you, people from every tribe and tongue and nation coming to know you, coming to know Jesus, coming to know the forgiveness of sins, coming to have their hearts purified by faith that they might be brought into the church, your body. Our Father, we pray that you would, you would let us be a part of that, that you would use us to, to minister your grace, your gospel to one another and to the world, and that you would bless our work, our ministry, that Jesus' name would be made known. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.